and welcome to the Westminster Institute. I'm Robert Riley, its director. Uh, today, we're welcoming Dr. Peter Vincent Pride to the program. He is the executive director of the EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security. Dr. Pride served as chief of staff of the Congressional Commission to assess the threat to the United States from electromagnetic pulse attack. As director of the United States Nuclear Strategy Forum and on the staffs of the Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture of the United States, the Commission on the New Strategic Posture of the United States, and the House Armed Services Committee with portfolios in nuclear strategy, WMD, Russia, China, NATO in the Middle East, intelligence and terrorism. Dr. Pry was an intelligence officer with the Central Intelligence Agency responsible for analyzing Soviet and Russian nuclear strategy, operational plans, military doctrine, threat perceptions, and developing U.S. paradigms for strategic warning. He also served as a verification analyst at the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency responsible for assessing Soviet compliance with strategic and military arms control treaties. He is the author of many books on national security issues, including Blackout Warfare, The Power and the Light, Will America Be Protected, and Russia and America on the Nuclear Brink. He joins us today to discuss why the United States should make peace, not war, with Russia. Welcome, Dr. Pride. Well, thank you so much for having me. I know I'm in, very much in a minority when it comes to thinking we should be making peace, not war with Russia. Uh, most of the views in NATO and Washington is that we should be making it as difficult as possible for Russia to invade Ukraine, or that we should be prepared to arm the Ukrainians, uh, that we should impose massive sanctions and uh, do whatever we can militarily to uh, counter uh, you know, Russian aggression against Ukraine. And I think that that's really a fundamental strategic mistake because the uh, Ukrainian crisis should be turned by the United States into a grand strategic opportunity to split the Russian-Chinese alliance, what I call the Sino-Russo axis uh, that many in Washington are finally waking up to the fact is real. Up until this crisis, Washington has been whistling past the graveyard of the idea of Russia and China becoming allies. Uh, a lot of um, the mainstream view in Washington has been, oh, Russia and China could never become allies. Uh, they have too many differences, including geostrategic differences. And so we have comforted ourselves with the security blanket that uh, because of these differences, they cannot form an alliance. Even though our own NATO alliance is riven with cultural and strategic and all kinds of political differences. <clears throat> you know, why do we imagine that Russia and China cannot resolve those differences just as Nazi Germany and uh, the Soviet Union resolved their differences at the beginning of World War II to be, to be allies? Uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend is usually all that is necessary to form a 
workable military alliance. And that's what we are facing now in Russia with Russia and China, which is the most formidable military economic bloc the free world has ever faced. It's more dangerous to us than the Soviet Union was. China has the vast population. It has an extremely powerful economic engine. It's a military superpower now, uh, made one by Russia. I mean, one of the most astonishing things to me about the long denial by Washington and experts in, in Western European NATO about the idea that China and Russia are allies is the fact that China's military power, about which we are so fearful these days, is basically built on Russian technology. You know, Russia spent the post-Cold War period providing China with advanced technologies for fighter aircraft, for ballistic missiles, for tanks, for command control communications and intelligence and satellites in combination with what Russia and China were able to steal from the United States. This is why in a relatively short period of time, China's military has been transformed, all of its services, including its nuclear forces, you know, from a really backward kind of a military establishment that we did not have much fear of to the formidable military that it has today. And on top of that, what Russia brings to this alliance uh, is its uh, nuclear arsenal. You know, Russia is the greatest nuclear superpower in the world. You know, we like to think of ourselves as on a par with Russia when it comes to the nuclear superpower because of things like the New START Treaty. But the fact of the matter is that Russia is way ahead of us. Partly that's our own fault because of our neglect of our nuclear triad. All of our nuclear deterrent, our, uh, our bombers, our ICBMs, and the ballistic missile submarines are 30 years behind Russia. You know, that's because we, we neglected, call it a, uh, a strategic deterrent holiday that we took in the aftermath of the Cold War. The ballistic missile submarines are the submarines that Ronald Reagan built. The bombers, the B-52 bombers go back to the 50s and 60s. The Minuteman was deployed, our ICBM force was deployed in 1972. And the warheads that are going to be delivered on those forces are not modern warheads either. They were designed during the Cold War and built during the Cold War, mostly during the period of Ronald Reagan or before, 30 years old. This is not true for Russia and China. They have actually got modern, brand new delivery systems. Their warheads are brand new. But we have recently learned I think it was last year that the State Department admitted, finally admitted, that Russia and China have been cheating on the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, and for 30 years have been conducting low-yield nuclear tests. So that means that the technology in the warheads of Russia and China, especially Russia, you know, are 30 years more advanced than the United States. The Russians write openly about their third-generation nuclear weapons, which include things like super EMP weapons. These are weapons that create extraordinarily powerful EMP fields, weapons that are specialized for neutron radiation, for X radiation, ultra low yield weapons, you know, that can be low as a, a kiloton and can be used on a battlefield 
or for demolishing a bridge or a single building and create no fallout, clean nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons that are of very low yield that can be used by all their services. Jet fighters equipped with nuclear air-to-air -air missiles, ships that can carry tactical nuclear missiles to do battle with our Navy, and nuclear weapons so small that they can be fired by tanks in tank-to-tank -tank battles. We have nothing like this in our nuclear arsenal, in our nuclear inventory. And of course, when we're talking about tanks and airplanes and, and ships, that brings us to the tactical nuclear weapons, you know, which are not constrained by the New START Treaty. The United States, foolishly, I think, there was an agreement at the end of the Cold War called the Presidential Nuclear Initiative that the sides were supposed to dismantle their tactical nuclear weapons. And the United States did that. We went from 15,000 tactical nuclear weapons to 180 tactical nuclear weapons today, mostly obsolete gravity bombs that are deployed in various European countries and bunkers, bunkered in various European countries, you know, mostly the Benelux countries, Italy and Turkey. Russia has at least 2,000 tactical nuclear weapons of modern design. Uh, some of the estimates are as high as 8,000. We don't really know how many they have, but we know they have at least 10 times as many as the United States. And Russia is in the partnership between China and, and, uh, and Russia. The other valuable thing uh, that Russia brings to this alliance is that it's a desperate character. Much is usually made of the idea that the Russian economy is so low as compared to Venezuela, for example. Some people actually laugh at Russia as a nuclear armed trailer park is how one wit has described it. That, oh, they're not that much of a threat but they're, because their economy is so small. I can't understand that kind of thinking. People like that don't think strategically. The fact that Russia has a weak economy and an incredibly strong conventional and nuclear military does not make them less dangerous, it makes them more dangerous. The small economy means that Putin has a short window of opportunity to use this war machine that he has built at great cost, perhaps a decade to use it. And so Russia being a desperate character, he can sort of be for China, you know, the equivalent of the, of the bad guy sidekick, you know, in a, if, in a, if you've seen the Western movies, you know, the person who can pick a fight with other people and is extremely aggressive, which is what Russia is. And, China, and, the, and the other guy can posture China as the more moderate character, the person who can restrain this bad actor. So this is a very dangerous combination. And the combination is even wider than the Russia-China alliance to which Washington is just waking up now. Because I and, and, and a minority of my other colleagues believes that this new axis includes not just Russia and China, but also North Korea and Iran. And the reason for this is because North Korea is the nuclear threat that it is today because its, it's nuclear deterrent is based on Russian and Chinese technology. North Korea could never gotten to where it is. I mean, if, just think about how rapid North Korea has acquired intercontinental ballistic missiles, gone from liquid fuel to solid fuel. It's gone from atomic weapons to hydrogen bomb. It has a hydrogen bomb now. It even has a super EMP weapon, which we don't have. There's only three countries in the world that have mobile ICBMs, mobile intercontinental ballistic missiles, missiles that can reach the United States. Russia, China, and North Korea. 
how did they get mobile ICBMs? The United States doesn't have mobile ICBMs. They got them from Russia and China. In fact, in one parade, the North Koreans forgot to take off the logo from, from the transporter or erector launcher that showed it was made in China. Iran is another thing. China and Russia are both in there. And so was North Korea helping Iran's nuclear and missile programs. Iran wouldn't have advanced as far as it has without the help of Russia and China. So the relevance of this is, you know, this is the most formidable block that we've ever faced. You know, to put it in a better context so people can understand it, just taking one of these actors, one of the lesser actors, North Korea is more dangerous to the United States today than Nazi Germany was to the United States in World War II. Nazi Germany didn't have the ability to reach out with intercontinental ballistic missiles and destroy American cities or American forces. North Korea does. So this is an extremely dangerous uh, circumstance that we have. And how do we deal with it when our own military has been neglected for, frankly, for decades fighting the war on terrorism? People think, oh, if Russia invades Ukraine, you know, we will uh, send our forces over there and uh, combine with the NATO that it's a real option that possibly you know, we could fight with the Russians and prevail in Ukraine. Some, most people don't think that. Most people are realistic not to think that, but I'm afraid the average American uh, and Biden supporter, for example, you know, and even many Republicans, uh, the average American who has not looked at the facts might think that we can do that, that, uh, that we can go in there and prevail in a conflict with Russia over Ukraine. And therefore we should stand strong for Ukrainian independence. Our military, despite the Trump administration's claims that uh, we have the strongest conventional military in the world and all the damage of the Obama years has been overcome, well, the president of the United States always has to say that, that our country is the strongest country in the world when it comes to the military. What's he supposed to do? Go out there in front of the television cameras and say, you know, our military is still weak and it hasn't been recovered from the years of neglect under Obama. And another problem is, is that We've been fighting war against terrorists. We're not prepared to fight against a peer competitor, a World War II type war. Our people haven't been trained that way. We don't fight that way. We've got a lot to relearn and we don't have the capabilities to fight peer, peer competitors. That's the truth, but no president can, can say that. People like me and people who do the analysis and, we, and argue with each other, we, we can say that and that's the reality. The Pentagon's own war games, show that if Russia invaded Ukraine, it could not only could it invade Ukraine, but it could also overrun the frontline NATO states in Eastern Europe, the Baltic states, Poland, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic in 72 hours. And there's nothing we could do to stop them, not in a conventional war. The only thing that, that, that possibly could stop them and the only thing that may be stopping them is nuclear deterrence. You know, we only have 5,500 troops deployed in Poland. 5,500 troops. And you know, Russia has got an army of over a million men. It's got 20,000 tanks, 1,000 aircraft. 5,500 US troops is not uh, a, con a significant conventional force. It's a nuclear tripwire. That's what it is. Our, our presence our, in the Baltic states is even smaller. It, it comes to less than 1,000 troops. You know, these troops could, would simply become prisoners if Russia decided to invade. The reason they're there 
is to serve as a nuclear deterrent because Russia knows that if it rolls over these states and kills Americans, it risks getting a nuclear war with the United States. And our nuclear deterrent, as I have explained, you know, is way behind. It's not what it was during the Cold War. We're 30 years behind Russia and even China in terms of our nuclear capabilities. You know, can we win? And I don't think we've got the political will to win either. You know, uh, you know, one should never promise to fight a nuclear war for a country that most Americans can't even find on a map. I can't imagine a new, an American president seriously willing to go to nuclear war for the sovereignty of Latvia or Lithuania, you know, who are actually NATO member states. And theoretically, we are obliged to go to nuclear war for them, let alone for Ukraine. So what I'm getting at here is that war is not an option for us. Oh, another reason it's not an option for us because of the Russo Chinese alliance is we're not prepared to fight a two theater war. Even the Pentagon admits that we have so shrunk our military forces and our military capabilities that if we have any chance to prevail against a peer competitor, it's gotta be a one theater war. That's another reason the Russians and Chinese have allied because if Russia invades Ukraine, it's almost a certainty that China would annex Taiwan and the South China Sea. And that would certainly, we can't even prevail against one of these powers in a one theater war. Our war games also show that in a contest over Taiwan, we've had 18 Pentagon war games playing that scenario, and we have lost every single one of them against China for Taiwan. So this, uh, the hawkish neocon, and I am a, I'm a hawk myself, okay? Uh, you know, I, I'm not some uh, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a, a, you know, a Reagan conservative. I just don't want us getting into a World War III that we're going to lose. You know, and the Biden administration is really playing with fire. We've been talking about nuclear forces, conventional forces. One more thing I have to add in terms of the balance of, of power, the balance of military power between the sides. <clears throat> we are almost completely unable, unprepared for the new way of warfare that Russia and China would probably use against us. Most of the calculations and analysis people are looking at again are, is conventional firepower, nuclear firepower. But Russia and China, both in their military doctrines, I have actually written a book on this, a new book on this called Blackout Warfare. The use of cyber weapons, the use of EMP weapons to black out and attack an adversary's critical infrastructures, for example, taking out the electric grid. You can do that with a cyber attack. You could shut down the national electric grid. And if you did that, you know, the United States would be helpless to even prosecute a war. 99% of the electricity that goes to CONUS military bases, all of them, 99% of that comes from the civilian electric power grid. If you black that out, we can't project military power overseas. Does that sound like science fiction, I would remind you that in April of last year, when we had the first Ukrainian crisis, when Russia had massed troops on Russia's border, we got a message from the Kremlin about this via, via television, via a, a, a woman, a lady named uh, Margarita Simonian. She's a friend of Putin. She's the director of RT and Sputnik, the Russian media giants. She's basically an unofficial spokesman for the Kremlin. 
And in the midst of that crisis, she basically came on and said, you know, if there's a war for Ukraine, it's going to be a cyber war. Uh, and we will win it. You know, we could do something like demonstrate to the United States how vulnerable you are by blacking out just Harlem. Or we could inflict more pain by blacking out the state of Florida. She specifically mentioned blacking out the state of Florida. I hope Governor DeSantis listens to this. Or we could win the war hands down by blacking out the whole United States. In my book, Blackout Warfare, and not just in my book, but numerous official US government studies that were done, including by the Congressional EMP Commission, warned that the Russians and Chinese have this capability to shut down our critical infrastructure. Almost every year, Russia demonstrates it can black out Ukraine around Christmas. Every year, they do a cyber attack in the Ukrainian electric grid to black it out. There's an enormous imbalance because we have neglected our conventional, our nuclear, and our cyber warfare capabilities. Even a nuclear EMP attack, by the way, is part of cyber warfare. In their doctrine, it's considered part of cyber warfare because the weapon does not go off. It's not a Hiroshima-type attack where you end up detonating a weapon in a city. It's done in outer space. If the weapon went off and you were standing directly beneath it, it's going off 300 kilometers over your head, you wouldn't even hear it go off. You might not even see it. And it wouldn't kill anybody, not immediately. There's no fallout, no radioactivity, just an electromagnetic pulse, which fries the electronics across an area the size of a continent. So it's considered part of electromagnetic warfare, electronic warfare. And the, the initial part of any future war with Russia and China is going to be fought in the electromagnetic spectrum initially. And maybe that would be all that would need to be done. You know, they could win the war that way. So when you're facing the possibility of losing World War III, I think the smart thing to do is, is diplomacy and to try to find your way out of this confrontation, try to talk your way out of this confrontation. This country needs time to rebuild its military power, to rebuild its nuclear forces, to catch up with these guys, to learn about cyber warfare and EMP, to at least protect our critical infrastructure so we're not so vulnerable to it. You know, we are unilaterally vulnerable to this. Something that just happened last week on Thursday, when the initial discussions between NATO and Russia failed and they weren't able to come up with a peace, almost immediately after that, uh, Russia launched a cyber provocation onto the Ukrainian government websites that said, basically, be warned, you know, if war comes, you know, it's going to be even the worst is going to happen to you. The worst will happen to you. And in reaction to that, and this is appalling, you know, but Biden, the Biden administration and NATO both publicly announced that they were sending cyber warriors into U Ukraine to help them. And this was in the context of the United States saying that one of the things we would do to Russia is make cyber attacks on Russia to punish it for attacking Ukraine. By saying that, the West still does not get that cyber warfare is an existential threat. It's not gray zone aggression. You know, it's not something that you do before the real war happens. That's how the Pentagon and, and too many of people in the West think of it. It's real war. It's for Russia and China, sending Western cyber warriors into Ukraine is equivalent to 
sending nuclear weapons into Ukraine to support Ukrainian activities. Uh, the Russians can misread that. They are a culture of strategic paranoia, after all. You know, they tend to overreact to things that the West does, and not just for diplomatic reasons, but because they have a much darker worldview of, of what can happen in the world, having been the victim of invasions throughout their history. So the, the, the bottom line for me here is, you know, we really don't have a military option. We don't have good military options. We don't have good non-military options in dealing with Russia. Uh, you know, look what happened with Crimea. Has Russia given back Crimea because of all of our sanctions and all, all of the screaming in the West? No, they haven't. Uh, in fact, you know, now they might take Ukraine. Now they might even be willing to go into the frontline NATO states and take back former territories of the USSR, which is part of Putin's dream. How do we stop that? Well, I'm not saying that this is a solution that's highly likely to work because it's always difficult. The, the worst time to negotiate is to negotiate from a position of weakness. But I think we have no choice. I think we should use the crisis to try to make Russia at least neutral. And if, if not, start the process of turning them into a strategic partner of the West again. I can go down the list. Russia's proposed peace treaty during this crisis, Russia offered a peace treaty to all the NATO nations, including the United States, that has six provisions. The peace treaty has been, so-called peace treaty, has been rejected by NATO and the United States as just uh, uh, something the Russians would not honor, that it's just a pretext for invading Ukraine, and that we cannot possibly ourselves meet any of the conditions without losing credibility. And I disagree with that. I think we could negotiate on the basis of the six provisions in the, in the peace treaty. And if we were to do that, if we were to lift all economic sanctions against Russia during this crisis, I think we'd have a good shot about achieving their neutrality, if not a strategic partnership, the beginning of a strategic partnership with Russia, not mainly because they trust us or even because we're making, we would be making these concessions, but I think Putin and the elites in Moscow are smart enough to understand that in the long run, China is a greater threat to Russia than the Western powers. China is eyeing hungrily Siberia. If, if I was Vladimir Putin and I was thinking of a future world dominated by Russia and China, you know, when they win World War III, and then I look at the balance of power, economic power between Russia and China, the only thing Russia will have going for it is its nuclear superiority. And that is going to be quickly disappearing. You know, Russia is on the process. We have discovered 350 new ICBM silos that China is building in the desert. Those are probably for the DF-41 ICBM. That means in a few years, you know, China will probably go to the level of about 4,000 nuclear warheads, you know, which is well on the way to starting to challenge not only the United States, but Russia as the dominant nuclear superpower. In terms of economic help, Russia has had the bitter experience in this partnership with China that it's pretty much a one-way street. I mean, China has not really done a lot to help Russia economically. Part of the reason for Russia providing this technology to China was to get hard currency. You know, it's had to sell its military secrets to China and its military technologies to China to stay alive, to keep its head above water economically. So China has not been a very friendly partner, so economically. 
So I think their current experiences with, uh, with, with China would provide grounds for them to, to look to the West if we were willing to provide that opening, you know, to, to say, look, let's try to, let's do a reset again. Let's try the reset again. You know, we'll accommodate your strategic, your security interests, and we'll provide you with the more economic benefits than China could. And you can trust us, you know, in the long run, a lot more than China. I think Russia would rather be on our side, but unfortunately the history of our relations has been to push them away. You may recall if we cast our minds back, maybe many people aren't even around now, but if you go back to the end of the Cold War, when we had wiser heads in Washington, the goal was to make Russia a strategic partner of the West. We wanted to bring Russia into the community of nations in the West. We hoped that the, Russia would adopt democratic institutions and a free market economy. And, and the reason we did that wasn't just out of benign behavior, we didn't want a revanchist Russia starting a new Cold War and, and coming back you know, to, to haunt us. We wanted to try to uproot the, uh, the problems that had caused the Cold War in the first place. And unfortunately, during the eight years of the Clinton administration, they completely bungled that. You know, The Clinton administration put Russia on the back burner. It was not the, our highest priority. Clinton called, cared a lot more about getting Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons. By the way, we promised to provide, protect Ukrainian sovereignty if they gave up their nuclear weapons under the uh, Bucharest Agreement. Clinton was much more concerned with American domestic politics than he was with Russia. And the people that he put in charge of Russia policy, people like Strobe Talbot, frankly, were fundamentally uh, were sympathetic to socialism and to, and to the, a lot of the communists. The hundreds of millions, indeed billions, that we gave to Russia went mostly to the Russian elites from the Soviet period, the nomenklatura, who were still in charge of Russian institutions, and then ended up in Swiss bank accounts. And it convinced the average Russian that, gee, you know, the communists were right about capitalism and democracy and free enterprise. It's really a criminal enterprise. You know, it's really the equivalent of putting the mafia in charge of everything. And, uh, and you may recall that during the Clinton years under President Boris Yeltsin, the Russian mafia basically was in charge of everything, it seemed. And the average Russian lost what he had, what little he had from the Soviet period. And that paved the way for the rise of dictator Putin. And then under the Bush administration, because this was a bipartisan failure, most of the enlargement of NATO, the expansion of NATO happened under George W. Bush. You had mentioned in the beginning some of my background. One of the responsibility I had during this period was I was on the House Armed Services Committee staff and one of my portfolios was NATO enlargement. They sent me to the former Warsaw Pact countries that wanted to come into NATO so often. And I met with their political and military leaders to try to, and came back to advise Congress on, you know, should we be enlarging NATO? What do these countries bring to the table in terms of advantaging NATO? And uh, they sent me there so often that uh, I actually ended up having favorite restaurants in countries like Latvia. But my position was, and I was a minority there, that we should not be enlarging NATO that it would inevitably put us on a collision course with Russia, that Russia was going to come back someday, and it would cause a new Cold War, and it would probably push Russia into the arms of China if we did that. Moreover, as sympathetic as I was to these victims of communism, 
you know, these people who had lived under the communist yoke. I thought it would be unethical to enlarge NATO to countries that we could not defend in any way except by nuclear weapons. You know, <clears throat> we just can't, couldn't defend NATO with conventional forces. Let's not forget that during the Cold War, the posture of our military was to try to save Western European NATO by taking a defensive posture. You know, we hope to stop the Soviet tank armies at the Fulda Gap in Germany. We weren't talking about projecting power into Eastern Europe. We didn't have the ability to do that. You know, we were facing a five to one disadvantage in terms of tanks, enormous disadvantages in terms of aircraft and artillery. And we face those disadvantages today and an even worse advantage in tactical nuclear weapons. How in the world were, are we supposed to project power into Eastern Europe to rescue those countries when we were hard pressed to just defend Western Europe? It didn't make any sense. Didn't make it any sense then, and it makes even less sense today. You know, during the Cold War, Germany had over a thousand tanks. Today, it has about 440 main battle tanks. And if you go across their surfaces, the number of soldiers they have, the jets, they have also shrunken away as they have failed to provide for their defenses. So it was a, a grand strategic mistake for us to go into Eastern Europe. Uh, but I think the reason we did it, and by the way, I, the late great Floyd Spence was with me. He was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. When I came back and I gave him his reports, we had many talks, we had talks with other members and they basically saw the writing on the wall and they understood that it would be unwise to enlarge NATO. But I remember I had a personal conversation with Chairman Spence about this. And he said, I agree with you, Peter, but politically, the momentum behind this is so great that we just can't stop it anymore. You know, the House Armed Services Committee on, on its own, you know, what wouldn't be able to have stopped it. And so it went forward. And uh, I and, and, uh, and many members of that committee thought that it was gonna end badly. Why did they do it? Well, it was, you might recall also at the end of the Cold War, you know, there was, a, there, were, there was a book called The End of History by Francis Fukuyama that predicted that the long struggle between tyranny and freedom had been won by the United States at the end of the Cold War. And then the future, all countries, including countries like Russia and China, were eventually going to brace our values, our systems, so the idea of a resurgent, revanchist, authoritarian Russia was not perceived as credible by a lot of people at the time. You know, they thought, oh, we won the Cold War. Our, we, we, uh, you know, we're not going to have to worry about this nightmare that people like Peter Pry are talking about. Well, they ended up being wrong, and I ended up being right about that. And, and here we are. This is the very thing that we had wanted to avoid. And uh, that's where we are. The best way out of it is to make peace, not war with Russia, as my article argues. And I think there are ways. I'd like to go over the Russian offers in terms of their peace treaty. There are six points. And just to discuss them and see, are these really so unacceptable to NATO that we can't do them? The first provision is that NATO must not accept new members, including Ukraine. In other words, let's stop the eastward expansion of NATO and not let Ukraine into NATO. You know, that's considered outrageous. It's already been rejected. Of course, you know, there's no final word in diplomacy. You know, we can always find ways to reverse that. 
I think that that's a perfectly reasonable demand. The whole reason we're in this fix now is because of the eastward expansion of NATO. There's this thing called a partnership for peace that a lot of Americans don't know about. And it's sort of an intermediate step toward membership in NATO. And the Russians certainly know about it. And the partnership for peace, if you look at who's in the partnership for peace, it does include, it includes Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, all the territories of the former Soviet Union are in the partnership for peace. And we have basically said net to all of, the, uh, all of these things. From Russia's perspective, you know, if we were to go forward with incorporating into NATO, the partnership for peace members, which is the only reason these countries have joined the partnership for peace, Russia would in fact be surrounded, you know, by, by NATO member states. Uh, and we would be taking on board states that we cannot defend con with conventional arms. The only way we could defend them is by putting um, US troops or NATO troops forward to serve as a nuclear tripwire. Never promise to go to nuclear war for a country you can't find on the map. How many Americans know where Kyrgyzstan is? You know? So I think this is very much in our interest to not expand NATO and, and not to bring Ukraine in. By the way, another reason the Russians are so upset about Ukraine. And one of the things I should, I should mention, and I mentioned this in my article, you know, the Russians have been warning for years that Ukraine is a nuclear tripwire for them, that they would be willing to go to nuclear war to stop Ukraine from coming into NATO. This is not a new thing they've been saying. When I was on the House Armed Services Committee back in 1998, you know, the Russian embassy, even though I was just a congressional staffer, all right, with a portfolio on NATO enlargement, the Russian embassy actually sent a representative to meet with me to warn me that if you bring Ukraine into NATO, it could be a nuclear war. You know, so they've warned officials high and low, and you couldn't get much lower than me, you know, to warn about the possibility of nuclear war over NATO. But Peter, if I may, because this is such an important point, yes. just ask you to amplify it. Um, I mean, the question, the larger question, uh, that is raised by this is since when did Ukraine become a vital national security concern of the United States? However, today, Wendy Sherman, Deputy Secretary of State, was in Switzerland meeting with the Russians saying NATO, nothing will compromise NATO's open door policy, which means other candidates are, are welcome to apply, including Ukraine. President Putin said quite clearly that Moscow has nowhere further to retreat to in the sense that were Ukraine to join NATO, the distance between exactly. that border, uh, which would now be a border of a foreign military alliance, which is what NATO is, would cut the distance to Moscow to less than 300 miles. Uh, so they lose their strategic depth. On the I'm other hand, Poland is saying if if such an agreement were reached with Russia to not bring Ukraine in, Poland would lose its strategic depth. There, here are two immiscible positions. It, it's hard to see when they've been set forth with such determination by both sides, how a compromise <clears throat> is going to be reached on no further NATO expansion on the one hand and the determined open door policy on the other. Well, this is a desperate strategy to rescue the United States. What I'm proposing is a desperate last ditch 
strategy to rescue the United States from losing World War III. Because if we press forward in this direction, I believe there is a very high possibility of a, of a, of a nuclear World War III or a cyber World War III or a conventional World War III or all of the above, and we will lose all of them, whatever, however it unfolds. And the outcome will be a new world order dominated by Russia and China and us, the defeated. And uh, I don't have high expectations, the Biden administration or anybody who's gonna listen to me. I'm standing athwart the railroad tracks of history, you know, with the locomotive rushing on, crying stop, hoping, uh, you know, but you're right, you know, with us taking an intractable position like this, it is guaranteeing a conflict. And, you know, one of the things that happened just over the weekend, you know, after the revelation, the public acknowledgement, in fact, the announcement that we were sending cyber warriors into Ukraine, over the weekend, a member of the Russian Duma said that in order to demonstrate Russia's resolve and sincerity, that Ukrainian admission into, in, in, into NATO would result in a nuclear war, he proposed that they launch a hypersonic warhead and detonate it in the Nevada test area, that they give us warning, but that they actually do that. Now, you know, that's an example of how close we are, you know, to the, to the cliff, to reinforce the point that you made about how, if Ukraine were to enter NATO, how dangerous that would be from Russia's perspective. I don't know if this is available on HBO, on the internet, it's on my television, but there's a Russian multiple part documentary on the history of the Great Fatherland War. It's called Soviet Storm World War II. I think it would be worth watching the first episode or two about Operation Barbarossa and what the situation of Russia was in World War II when Nazi Germany had uh, taken Kiev and reached the, the borders of Ukraine. That was the last spring. I mean, most people thought that when the, the Nazi armies had gotten that far, that the fall of Russia was almost inevitable. And it would have probably been inevitable if the winter hadn't come early and if the Russians hadn't had T-34s and some brilliant generalship on their side to launch a winter offensive against the Germans. The Germans hadn't prepared for that. You know, from the Russian perspective, we must remember that in World War II, Russia lost 20 to 30 million people fighting the Nazis. And in these very areas, what are called the bloodlands, for good reason, because they're, they were saturated with blood as a consequence, Russian blood, as a consequence of almost losing World War II because the, the adversaries, Nazi Germany, had been able to advance that far. So, of course, this is unacceptable to them. But most Americans and Washington itself doesn't seem to understand that, doesn't seem to be capable of standing in Russia's shoes and objectively looking at the strategic situation. I think they're blinded by a fundamental difference in strategic cultures. You know, our history, while the Russian history has made them, let's call it strategic paranoia, all right? They see threats behind every tree because of their dark history. We're just the opposite. You know, uh, our strategic culture is what I would call a, a strategic culture of dysfunctional optimism. Because throughout most of our history, we have been protected, isolated from the rest of the world by the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And even in the worst wars, you know, if you compare the casualties we took in World War I 
compared to those that Russia suffered or the casualties that the United States suffered in World War II, you know, a few hundred thousand uh, deaths and casualties compared to the millions that Russia lost in World War II, we've been very fortunate. And that's reflected in our attitude. And we have this naive belief that the rest of the world, including real hard cases like Russia and China, who have had very bloody histories and are there are our cultures of strategic paranoia, that they will understand that America doesn't do Pearl Harbors. America doesn't do nuclear Pearl Harbors. And why don't they trust us that everything that we do is going to be perceived by the other side as basically perfectly innocent in the interests of larger mankind and is not intended to put them at risk? Well, they don't see us that way. And we never seem to grasp that the other side has legitimate, even when it has illegitimate security concerns, we put ourselves in danger when we ignore those concerns, whether they're legitimate or illegitimate. And we're now even facing threats of a nuclear strike on Nevada over Ukraine. And God knows why, because as you pointed out, what is America's interest? How, is the, how are the security of the American people advanced if we did bring Ukraine into NATO? Our, our security is actually being endangered by allowing this ambiguity to exist. In the article I wrote that I think another part of the problem, and the problem is on us, that since 1945, the United States has tried to create a new world order based on international law and international norms, okay, but fundamentally governed by international law. I mean, Partly, its, it's physical manifestation is the United Nations and the Hague Court, all right? And that everybody will be, it will be normalized for everybody to obey international law. That situation has never existed in history. And it appeared to be realistic in 1945, perhaps, because, and, and, and through much of the Cold War, because the United States was the dominant power economically and militarily throughout that period. But that situation doesn't, exist anymore. You know, we've lost our military dominance for sure and our nuclear dominance uh, and, uh, and even our economic dominance has been, has been lost. So we don't have the, the material wherewithal to continue to sustain this concept of this Camelot-like concept of a world that's going to be governed by international law. And that's a, I think that's a lot of what's motivating Washington elites to, to yell at Russia You've got to respect Ukrainian sovereignty. We're going to punish you if you don't. And I think we need to go back to a more realistic vision of how the world was managed that existed before 1945. I refer to Metternich in, in, the, in the article I wrote, the great Austrian statesman who in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars organized the, the concert of Europe by saying that, look, we don't all have the same values, you know, uh, but we can recognize that various nations have spheres of influence, all right? And everybody will respect the balance of power. You can't demand, we didn't have this concept of a global international law, a world order based on global international law at the time of Metternich, but that, uh, and Metternich has gotten a lot of bad press in history because subsequently he was blamed for World War I. But when you think about it, you know, he did a lot better than we did. The Metternich model for organizing world affairs, respecting balances of power, because you've actually invested 
in armies and navies and uh, uh, you know, to maintain the balance of power and respecting spheres of influence so you don't interfere with the, uh, uh, while at the same time, the spheres of influence are based on the idea that the sovereignty of the nations within those spheres is gonna be respected, all right? It was a century before we went from the Napoleonic Wars to World War I, all right? The idea of interna international law, international order, sort of came up after World War I with the League of Nations. It wasn't a century before we had World War II. And uh, you know, the, the, this paradigm hasn't been working out very well. So I think we, we need to go back to a more classical approach to managing our foreign policy. And that would be, even though we don't like Russia, even though they're an authoritarian state, it's in our interests to try to split the Sino-Russian alliance. And we should be willing to make many concessions to Russia to draw them in our direction. And I think their natural direction is in our direction. You know, they are part of the West. We are not as much of a threat to them as China is. I think if we start opening that door, we might be surprised at how quickly we could turn this around. And if we could break the Sino-Russian alliance, China is a very conservative actor. They would in effect be isolated. Instead of threatening military aggression to advance their aims, I think they would be drawn into the diplomatic political balance of power game. And so we would be getting away from the edge of a nuclear World War III and into a period of negotiating and maneuvering, as was the case between the Napoleonic Wars and World War I. If I could just say, uh, Peter, uh, two quick points. One, that no one that I know of, of a military perspective, doubts that should Russia move, it can take Ukraine, especially in light of the fact that the United States and NATO have made clear they will not deploy military forces in response to that. So Putin's holding the cards here. Yes. I mean, what he's, facing, what he's facing is a retaliation that Biden has darkly alluded to, as well as other NATO member states have, uh, and, and which Putin responded to by saying that would completely break our relations should that happen. Whatever Putin wants now, he seems to have the cards in his hand to yeah. get. Now, in the larger picture that you just presented, the, the concert of the, the Congress of Vienna and what came out of it was made possible by the defeat of Napoleon. Napoleon made France a non-status quo power. Today, we have two non-status quo powers, Russia and China, both of which are fueled by a terrible sense of grievance. Yes. China by its century of humiliation, uh, Russia by its loss of empire. And whereas Putin has not suggested reconstituting uh, the Soviet Union, he has repeatedly made the case that there is a larger Russia that he has in mind uh, that was uh, traditional and that Russia should obtain. And at the heart of that, of course, is Ukraine. Now, both China and Russia <clears throat> as non-status quo powers have developed the military power to solve or to, uh, to from uh, a perspective of uh, military superiority, address their grievances or get us to address their grievances. 
Your point is that we ought to do that because we're not in a military position to face them down. The concert of nations to which you allude that accepts these great differences between these various political systems is only possible if you have status quo powers. And these aren't status quo powers. Well, the analogy is imperfect because, as you noted, the non-status quo power, France, was defeated and prostrate, all right? And we're not in a position to create the circumstances, the geostrategic circumstances that existed at the end of the Napoleonic War by defeating Russia and China. I'm hoping that we can avoid a World War III, that we're going to lose by splitting the Sino-Russo axis, by turning lemons into lemonade, as it were, and utilizing this crisis as a way of trying to accommodate Russia's strategic interests. That's what I think we should be doing. And a lot of my conservative friends have called me Neville Chamberlain, and I'm an appeaser, you know, for doing that. However they may be, I would remind them that most of them who hate Neville Chamberlain are great admirers of Churchill. And Churchill was willing to make common cause with Stalin in order to defeat Nazi Germany. And I think that's how we should be thinking about this situation, that we've, we're, we're not in World War III, not as a shooting war yet. We're on the verge of it becoming that. If it does become that, and we have to face the alliance of Russia and China, we're going to lose. The only way we can possibly win, and the only way we can prevent it, I think, is, is by changing Russia's mind about a, its relationship with the West at least getting them into neutrality, ideally building a strategic partnership with them. And I think Putin is smart enough to see that he's better off with the West than he is with China. Because in the long run, Russia is not going to be an equal partner with China. Russia will be eaten by China if there's a World War III and there's a new world order that's dominated by Russia and China. So all of these things make me hopeful that there's some possibility Okay, I don't say that it's a great possibility. Maybe it's a 50-50 kind of a thing. But trying to find a diplomatic solution is a lot better than going, staying the course that we're, that we're on now that is going to, I think, drive us over the cliff and put us into a losing war. If we could just address one other of the items in Russia's so-called treaty, you mentioned no further expansion of NATO, therefore no uh, prospect of Ukraine entering NATO, but it also says no NATO forces in any of the new NATO countries since uh, who were given membership since 1997, which means, of course, not in the Baltic countries, but also not in Poland. That seems to be a non-starter. It is a non-starter for yeah, were, were the United States, they, they would basically be agreeing to uh, their own dissolution of that security pact. That's what NATO says, okay? And that's what Washington says. And that's why it's considered a non-starter. I think that's in our interests. The forces that we have deployed to these countries, it's only relatively recently that because of the emerging threat from Russia that we started putting Western forces, US forces into these countries. They're very small. We only have 5,500 troops in Poland, all right? From a military perspective, they're not a credible deterrent for a conventional war. They're basically nuclear tripwires. 
I think it was a mistake in the first place for us to enlarge NATO. And I think America's first obligation is to security the American people. I think if it were put to a vote by the American people about do we want to get in a nuclear war with Russia over the sovereignty of Slovakia, they would say, hell no. And that's my view as well. Uh, it was a mistake to have enlarged this in the first place. And it's making the matters worse by forward deploying our forces into these areas. So the Russian request for us to pull our forces back, I think is reasonable from a Russian security perspective. And I think it's even more in our own interests to do that, you know, because we are dealing with a paranoid strategic culture there. And anything that reduces the possibility of miscalculation that result in a nuclear war is a good thing, in my view. I don't think it would result in a dissolution of NATO. That's the argument that people make. It would certainly diminish the credibility you know, of NATO. But these countries were eager to join NATO before we had troops in their territory. And they were in NATO for some years before a single American soldier appeared on their territory. They will still be NATO members, and we, we will still have the legal obligation you know, to defend them. It may have the positive effect of also encouraging them to invest more in their own defense and not rely so heavily on the U.S. nuclear guarantee for their defense, which is, I think, one of the mistakes we have made with the Western European NATO, and they have underinvested because, in effect, uh, the West Europeans have have envisioned a future World War III as being fought over their heads between the homelands of what was then the Soviet Union during the Cold War and the United States. I think we owe the American people a better deal than that, you know, when it comes to providing, you know, providing for, the, for their security. So I agree with you that, you know, the Biden administration, and every, uh, you know, was saying that that's a non-starter, but I disagree. You know, I, I think it's in our own interests to do that. Since you alluded to Neville Chamberlain, of course, his name has been mud uh, for a long time, but there's a growing acknowledgement that Chamberlain saw the threat to the extent that he was the one who started the rearmament of Great Britain. And there's a general admission that had Great Britain gone to war with Nazi Germany beforehand, it would have lost. It was only getting that extra time uh, in which to build the Spitfires and the other uh, military forces that it was able to enter the war when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Here's the question. Let's say the United States did, as you suggest, but does it have a sufficient sense of alarm that it would use this opportunity, this pause, to undertake the serious military modernization that is required for us to defend ourselves. I think that's even likely to happen. Oh, but responding to what you said about Neville Chamberlain first, I agree with you. And I, and I agree with the revisionists who are trying to remove the mud from Neville Chamberlain's name. Nonetheless, when my colleagues have compared me to Neville Chamberlain, I don't think it was meant as a compliment. <laughs> but moving on, yeah, I think that that's a real risk that we won't do that. I'm not saying that this, what I'm proposing is some kind of a silver bullet that's going to solve all our problems. In fact, my deep fear here 
is that the American empire, if you want to call it that, is in its dying stages and that we've lost the political will to defend our own interests. It's sort of sort of like the end of the Roman empire. There was one time when the, you know, when they, they weren't even able to maintain Hadrian's wall anymore. And you saw the rise of walled cities in Western Europe, which is a lot of archeologists point that to that as the end of Roman Empire, because prior to that, the people could count on the legions to defend them. But the rise of walled cities happened. Most cities during the classical period under the Roman Empire did not have walls, did not have defensive walls. We may be reaching that point where we have to build a wall around the United States and go into a fortress America posture because our political leadership doesn't have the will to maintain the commitments that we have made overseas. My proposal is trying to buy us time to make, if we want, if we think NATO is important and we want to defend NATO and we want to continue to have a a world order that's got some chance of our values and and, and freedoms, you know, maybe maybe the vision that Francis Fukuyama had coming true someday so that it will spread, then we need time to build the military and economic wherewithal to do that. But given current trends and given the kind of leadership that we've had when in recent years, I'm not convinced at all that we will be able to make the right decisions. We may well continue to be, especially with our country divided as it is over internal, you know, we've got a cold civil war that's getting more and more intense, which is also dangerous to our national security, by the way. China and Russia and North Korea and Iran all see that. And it and, and affects their decisions on war or peace to see us so divided. You may well be correct, but what's the alternative? If we decide to leave those leave those troops there so that we uh, so they become pris- captured and, and members of a prison of POW camp in Russia, how would that be for us? The worst outcome is for the United States to get in a major war that it's going to lose. We can't afford that. So that's the outcome I'm I'm trying to avoid. I'm not hopeful that we're going to end up doing the right thing and rebuilding our military, but following the path of diplomacy with Russia and trying to break up the Russian Chinese and alliance is the best bet we've got for, for making, keeping NATO relevant and keeping the United States engaged in the world. I'm afraid that we've run out of time and I'd like to thank Dr. Peter Pry for discussing with us today why the United States should make peace not war with Russia. I also invite our audience to go to the Westminster Institute website where you will find a number of programs and lectures on this subject of Russia, also on China, uh, Islam, and other things that I hope will be of interest to you. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Robert Riley.